Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some more Netflix news, a reboot for the Resident Evil franchise, Hong Kong gets its first CGV cinema, and Anhui's Our Time will be coming to the Shanghai Film Festival. Plus, we look at the films 29 Plus One and Alien Covenant. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk in the front row of a one-woman stage play is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hey there, everyone. How's it going, Paul? Going good, going good. How are you doing, sir? Uh, things are all right. Yeah. Um, the busiest time of the year, well, busiest time of the last month is uh, kind of coming to an end. Uh, lots of stuff wrapped up and uh but i'm hit with a bat allergies today so my voice might be a little weird you might hear some sniffling here mm. and there yeah yeah indeed yeah and, i feel like i'm starting to come down with a little bit of something too i've got a raspiness in my voice is do you have like a allergy to like um what is it in in america it would be what flowers um pollen no, um something. pollen yeah, yeah there you go yeah, yeah, yeah uh i've never had allergies before but you know i'm finding as i get older uh, lots of things start to change and don't work like they used to, so I guess anything's possible, right? Uh, it's just the, the problems of, of getting older. Speaking of, uh, you know, some errata on previous episodes, allow me to apologize for episode 225, um, which has gone up, um, I think, late yesterday um, and at the time of this recording. So that issue had some serious lag problems, and they... When I went to edit, they were actually much worse than what I thought I heard during the actual recording. And, th and that's on me because, you know, when I'm sitting here, it's not just a case of speaking into the microphone. I'm watching levels on one screen. I've got notes on another screen. And so a lot of times we've done this for so long, um, you know, my, my attention gets focused elsewhere rather than solely listening uh, to... Mr. Kevin Ma. Um, so when I sat down to edit, I started listening to it, and there were just a lot of drop-offs in places. And I was kind of close to having to call it a lost episode, which happens from time to time on podcasts because of technical glitches like that and other things. And I just powered through, and I edited it and edited it and edited it. And I think I had ended up, I think we, you know, about maybe 20%, 15 to 20% of Kevin's review of... Um, shockwave isn't there 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 are small snippets of his discussion on guardians of the galaxy and a little bit of the news where the lag dropped off and i was able to piece things together without losing too much of what he was saying uh, but a significant portion of the shockwave review got hit with that lag and i trimmed it together to try and make it fairly seamless um, but there are still some points where you can tell um, there's some issues there so I, I do apologize for that and hopefully there's still enough 
um, information in his review to be informative for listeners out there. And so we'll try to. Oh, should we should I just repeat the whole thing? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> the film, the film, uh, in case it, it got cut out, it, the film is fine and uh, it doesn't make much sense, but it's fun. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, yeah, go back and listen, and uh, and uh, if, you know, hopefully it won't be too problematic for your ears. Um, also, reflecting back, another thing that I had actually had in the notes that I forgot to mention from a few episodes back when I was talking about the circle was the soundtrack, which the soundtrack for that movie was provided by um, the the very awesome Danny Elfman, who I've always enjoyed as a composer. I've recently gone back and watched one of the first things he did, Forbidden Zone, um, which is just kind of this really weird, uh, odd film. Have you ever seen that, Kevin? Uh, no, no. It is basically, I guess, him and his, like his brother is the director and his sister stars in it. And all I can say is it's kind of like their attempt to, to make a Rocky Horror picture show kind of style of thing. It's really weird. It's kind of terrible in a lot of places, but he does the music and he has a cameo in it. And of course, his music's always great. And but the circle, he does kind of this um, electronic music, which I tend to gravitate towards. I'm not a music guy, and I really, but I do really enjoy sort of electronica and synth music. And he kind of puts that in there for the circle soundtrack, and it's appropriate, I think, for the kind of vibe that they're going with talking about technology. And I've been listening to it um, on repeat for the past couple of weeks, and I really enjoy it. I know it's not a kind of thing that's for everybody, but if you're somebody who likes, you know, cheesy chiptune kind of stuff or you like, you know, electronic music, you might want to check it out because uh, that's the kind of stuff that appeals to me, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I forgot to make mention of it um, because he is a very well-known composer, and he's done quite a lot of famous scores over the years. You know, going back to things like The Simpsons and, of course, the, the uh, Batman, original Batman movies and, and that kind of stuff. So check that out if that kind of thing interests you. Um, all right. So I think that's enough sort of errata and catching up on previous episodes and mistakes we've made. Let's get into our news proper because we have quite a bit of it this week. So, Kevin, the talking stick is back in your court with this week's news. Here at the news desk... Um, sort of continuing last week about the, the Netflix debate. Um, so the first screening of Okja, um, the new Netflix film directed by Bong Joon-ho, um, uh, had its, um, happened last week in Cannes, and the, there was a bit of a controversy at the uh, the press screening because uh, so this is 8.30 morning screening, this uh, the one where you have to wake up at 6.30 and then line up for an entire hour for, and it's the first screening of the film ever in the world, and the press um, apparently started out not being so friendly to the Netflix logo. They first booed the logo, which happens. Apparently it happened last year when Amazon's uh, logo kept popping up all over the place. Um, there is a uh, sort of a stance against these new streaming services among the press and among cinephiles. And, okay, that's understandable. But then it uh, turns out that the booing continued for eight more minutes because the uh, technical staff at, at the, the cinema playing there which is the grand theater lumiere which is a 2200 seat theater it's a main theater where the biggest uh, the competition films are all shown they have misframed the film um as since apparently the film was shot in um it looks like either 185 or 2.0 to 1 ratio but the cinema had 
have framed it uh, at a 2.35 uh, to 1 aspect ratio, which is like ultra-wide um, ratio. And the film was misframed, which means uh, the, the characters have the head, top top half of the heads all cut off. And um, as they do in France, they booed, they booed and stomped their way until the cinema or the, the staff stopped the film and had to restart the film. Uh, the rest of the screening went well. The reviews came out, and some of it's great, some of it's not so great. But I tend to, you know, gravitate towards the, the good ones anyway because I'm a huge fan of Bong Joon Ho, and it, it starts starting a lot of sort of controversy, right? Like either the some people are saying whether the uh, it was can sabotaging uh, the screening, uh, whether this was done on purpose, and then some of the news organization misreported the thing. They thought that people were booing the film so loud that the cinema had to stop the film, which is not true, by the way. They were booing the bad aspect ratio. Um, at least they were okay. They were booing the logo, but then you know, usually because these people are there to review the film, a lot of these critics are there to review the film, so they do their little thing, and they they would like to see the film because they have to review it. So when it's misframed, then they have to make their voices heard, and that's what happened. Not because they were booing, because they were protesting against Netflix. Now, um, yeah, I don't want. We could get into the issue more, but on my on my website asiaandcinema.com, I wrote a long twenty two hundred word. Um, sort of piece, opinion piece about this Netflix debate and why people are sort of making too big of a fuss about this Netflix deal and and how you know I it, 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 I can understand both sides and and it, it sort of sort of um, encourages people to to sort of make room for for both for these systems to coexist and, and I stand by that that opinion. Can you give us a Short summary. Well, essentially, what I do is what I did was I sort of laid out the the arguments for for why Netflix exists, why this why first of all why this model is one that is worthy. Um, but first of all, I sort of lay out the fact that people are so against this system because it throws a wrench into this well-oiled machine that is the film industry, and it is not just production and release. This whole machine includes. Um, film festival, film financing, film sales, and film distribution, and the media, and you know everyone that is this big gear and, and you know machine with lots of gears in it. And I myself am, am part of that gear. Um, so of course I should be the one going. You know, oh Netflix is ruining cinema because if Netflix system replaces what we know as the film industry, then a lot of those gears will be. You know, essentially destroyed, and that includes the cinema going experience. That includes what I, you know, sales agents. That includes uh, um, big conglomerates run these these video on demand services. That you know ruins even iTunes in a way. So I I sort of understand why people are so against Netflix, but why I argue is that what Netflix is offering is essentially complete creative freedom. In return, that the trade-off is that the filmmaker have to realize that their film won't be seen in cinemas uh, in most of the world, um, and it is a very difficult decision to make. It's a very difficult dilemma. As someone who went to film school and and who knows filmmakers, and as someone who loves 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 the cinematic experience, of course, I do not want I don't want the cinemas to get replaced. But of course, cinema going movie going is not getting any easier movie going has been um difficult because cinemas you know have been getting worse the quality has been getting worse the the, the behavior of the audiences have been getting worse and 
and sometimes I think cinemas just aren't worth, you know, worth the sympathy, essentially. That's what I'm saying. But at the same time, you know, as a filmmaker, you want your film to be seen on a big screen. But at the same time, Netflix does offer one in terms of production, creative freedom, and filmmakers will get their smaller projects funded. For example, Okja would not have had a $50 million budget in traditional Hollywood studio or even Korea because Korea can't afford a film like that. Um, and, and Hollywood, they, they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't buy into Bong Joon-ho's ideas or they wouldn't give him so much money because he's not a proven commercial filmmaker, uh, at least in the States. So, so it's a difficult trade-off. And, and what I was trying to say in the piece is that I think both systems can coexist. I think that, you know the gear you know netflix isn't necessarily interested in destroying the machine i think they're not able to because they can't make the number of films that would essentially kill the film industry the film a lot of the film a lot of films still rely on that traditional model for example if a film like whiplash made by a new filmmaker um it would not be financed by netflix because netflix wants to work with famous filmmakers to get subscribers so those films um, by new directors, they still need the traditional system. And so do a lot of, say, Hong Kong films. Um, because, you know, people wouldn't just buy in, go and watch a film by some guy named Herman Yao. Uh, so, so you know, I, I was just sort of reflecting or, you know, I guess mirroring what uh, Tilda Swinton said at the press conference with Okja and that there is room for everybody to exist netflix isn't killing cinemas i think cinemas had a part in killing cinemas but um at the same time no i would not want netflix to kill cinema and i i hope that it's not trying to i think it's just um part of the model and 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 i don't think it's it has enough power to destroy the movie going experience i think i think you make some good points and i you know we've gone over this before my position on the cinema going experience is that it has declined and Hollywood and cinemas have not helped themselves by trying to sort of stuff their own ballot box as it were with things like, you know, XD and 3d and IMAX and all this other thing that simply ups their ticket price as they try and, you know, uh, make up for, I guess, losses because you do have a generation of young people, I think, that are less enthusiastic about going and paying $10, $15 for a movie ticket when, on the one hand, either they don't want to pay for media at all because they're doing torrents, which is bad, or they want subscription services that are going to cost them the price of a movie ticket but give them a wide variety of content, including brand new content that is as good as many theatrical releases and it's going to cost them, you know, $15 a month, which is the price of a movie ticket. Um, and so I think that's the thing that the industry is kind of wrestling with. And is this a case of resistance to change? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, you know, it's it's anytime you any anytime in history you look at these sort of media upheavals, whether it was the Gutenberg Press, you know, making uh, printing cheap and accessible to the masses or whether it was the introduction of television and suddenly people were going to stop reading and they were going to become dumb. And, you know, always there's this new sort of pop culture medium that, that generally appeals to the younger groups that I think uh, is seen by the older kind of more vested interests 
of the for the older forms, um, you know, that they're going to be resistant to it. And it's natural. It's natural. I don't necessarily see it as problematic for people who want to work in the industry if they're flexible, right? I mean, somebody who's a film critic who goes to Khan and, and other things can just as easily be a film critic for things that get a new release on a new platform, right? They're, you know, the, the industries may reshape. I don't think it's a case of out-and-out -out destruction. Um, now, for theaters, people who run physical theaters, yeah, that's going to be a problem. But, you know, young people just aren't into that experience anymore. And as you pointed out, um, many times I go to the theater and it's like I don't want to be there because people are rude or they're noisy or other things are happening um, or I'm paying more for an image that doesn't seem all that great to me. I mean, I went, uh, the, the film we're going to talk about later today, I went and watched a normal screening of it. I could have gone to an XD screening of it and paid more. And I thought, am I going to really notice a difference? Because I've been to a couple XD screenings. And I sat there in the theater. It was a large screen. The image looked fine. It was bright. It was clear. It was crisp. I'm like, why am I paying more for XD um, if I'm not seeing a difference? And that might just be a problem with my vision. And very much so. Maybe other people do notice um, that, that, that difference in crispness. crispness. But for me, I don't. And I'm questioning whether I should spend that kind of money. And I'm sure that for young people, again, you know, when it comes to their pocketbooks and their wallets, um, they're making different choices as well. And they see media in a very different light than we do. I don't think that Netflix is outright replacing the cinema experience. I think that um, it, you know, people ask, I mean, Netflix, you know, Netflix have been trying to get theatrical releases for their films. But the problem is because they have this worldwide streaming release strategy that they the cinemas won't play along because oh if you're going to put your movies on netflix the same day i have no reason to play your book your film so cinemas are as are also actively resisting putting netflix films on their screens which is partly why netflix films can't be seen on the big screen um i think there are a couple of questions that people have and i, I mentioned that in the piece for example why why are there less resistance to Amazon? That's because Amazon is more of a distributor and and they play the game because they work as a US distributor. They don't do worldwide distribution, even though Prime Video is now global. Uh, you, I have never seen an Amazon original film in the Hong Kong version of Prime Video. Um, they also do a, the, uh, a a traditional theatrical release window, and that's why theaters will play, will show their films, and that's why Manchester by the Sea made so made you know, got into a profit, at least on the, the box office side. And that's also why Oscar voters were willing to vote for Manchester by the Sea because they had a traditional theatrical release and more people were able to, more well, more Academy voters were able to see it. Um, and also if Netflix wants to put their films on the, in theaters worldwide, um, first of all, local, they have to find distributors for 190 countries. Which is what a sales agent does, and they don't, you know, Netflix isn't interested in doing that. They can't do it. They don't have the resource to do it, and they don't want to do it. And or if they have to 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 do a sort of global rollout, the local distributors won't agree because one country's perfect weekend is maybe another country's worst weekend, you know. And and that a global theatrical release is never going to work because of you know local releasing strategy. So. Um, the main the main goal is to attract more subscribers and that's why netflix is doing that model and i can understand it now if you do want to see okja on the big screen and i'm sure many people do uh if you're in the us the uk or south korea apparently there will be um 
well, US and UK will be limited release because again, theaters are actively resisting this model. Even though actually, um, the new Netflix uh, animated film Blame um, did have a 27 screen release in Tokyo, and it played in uh, uh, some three of the major chains in Tokyo. So there is sort of a, a less, and and it did very well actually. It had a a pretty good um, per screen average in Japan this last weekend. Um, so you know it, it's it's a conundrum. It's true, and and there are too many forces pushing back. And but I don't think that the Netflix I, uh, production model is going to uh, uh, replace the traditional one. First of all, Netflix sucks at at publicizing their films. It's hard to for people to know like how many people actually know that War Machine is coming out in two days. War Machine this is a film with Brad Pitt that Netflix have poured eighty million dollars into. How many people know it? Yeah, I mean, I I can definitely agree on that point. Netflix has a major problem with their um, user interface and their user experience in terms of just even going through the trying to find the list of stuff that I want to watch, you know, that I've added to my watch list because they move it around and it shifts around all the time and then they'll throw up stuff they think I'm interested in based on stuff. They really need to, to, you know, get to work on that. And back to your point on Netflix not doing good promotion. If you're going to watch the trailer for Okja, go to YouTube. Don't watch it on Netflix because the Netflix trailer is terrible. <laughs> it shows next to nothing of the film. So, again... Oh, that, well, go, go to Netflix YouTube channel <laughs> and yeah. watch it there. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, don't watch it on Netflix proper because, yeah, come on, guys. Get your act together. Uh, spend some of that. Spend some of that money you're 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 directing uh, at movies and and productions. And take a little bit of it and fix your user interface. That'd be great. All right. Some further news in the Netflix uh, roundup, and we do apologize for going on a bit extensively about Netflix, but it's in the news. What are you going to do? Um, this is a this is a bit of news that caught my eye, and it is a follow up to the movie Dark Crystal. Uh, I guess if you're a younger viewer, you may not have seen The Dark Crystal. I tried to show it to my wife and brother-in-law and sister-in-law who are younger, and they would not have any of it. When they, The minute they saw puppets, they're like, what is this? Um, but for my generation, The Dark Crystal was sort of this classic, um, you know, Henson, Jim Henson's Creature Studio um, creation that was just uh, amazing, this sort of fantasy vision that he had. Netflix is now working with the Jim Henson... Um, Creature Creation Shop to put on a prequel uh, of this series. It's going to be a 10-episode series. It supposedly takes place decades before um, the the film itself. And although, you know, the late Jim Henson is no longer with us, I guess, you know, they have been inspired by his vision. And the only thing they have in terms of a trailer so far is kind of documentary footage of the original film and him talking about the vision he has and some of the design and artwork stuff that's out there. Um, but I'm a big fan of this, and it's something that, you know, when I see Netflix doing this kind of stuff, this is what makes me happy. This is what makes me think that, again, Netflix has a very good vision going forward and is willing to take risks that, you know, traditional Hollywood might not. Um, so, Kevin, are, were you a Dark Crystal fan at all? I am very, very young, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've never heard of Dark Crystal, I'm afraid. You've never heard of the Dark Crystal. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, you have some homework ahead of you, sir. Uh, it's you, not if, like I've ne- it's not like I've like never fantasy. heard of Star Trek. Yeah. 
if you like fantasy. Again, it's puppets. You know, it's it's one of those. It's such a weird and bizarre. I mean, it's um, it's not quite to the complexity of Yoda from say Empire Strikes Back and uh, Return of the Jedi, but you know, it was pretty amazing for the time. So I'm very interesting to see what they do and how the technology has sort of changed. And again, it's going to be a prequel. So who knows? I got you know. In terms of story, what it's going to be doing, I have a general idea, but um, you know, I guess anything is possible at this point. But I'm looking forward to that. And outside of Netflix, though, we've got a bit of other franchise intellectual property news. There is a reboot planned for the Resident Evil franchise, and we just talked about the last Resident Evil movie uh, a bit earlier this year, uh, and that kind of sort of ended the run, I guess, of Mila Jovich and Paul W.S. Anderson in doing this series. And so now they want to do it again. Uh, It's going to be, you know, I guess helmed by different people, but it made enough money that some studios are showing interest and who knows what they're going to come up with, whether it's going to be within the same universe or a completely new reboot. None of the details have been slated for that. No issues on who's going to be directing or starring or anything like that. But if you're a Resident Evil fan, you have some hope that uh, you're going to be seeing more of this um, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, I I think it's a bit too soon for me, for myself. I think I'm kind of done with Resident Evil or Biohazard for a little bit, um, unless they do something vastly different, like maybe a majority Asian cast, you know, because it is a, you know, it does come from Japan or something like that, but I don't think they'll be that bold, but... You never know. Um, Kevin, is this exciting news for you at all? Man, you people wonder why I watch Netflix originals. <laughs> <laughs> like, why I'm so hot for Netflix originals, because at least they're making original films. Yeah. You know, yeah. look at this. I, I never cared for the Resident, Resident Evil franchise, and, you know, the, the six, seven films, they never were, like, $400 million movies. Like, I mean, it's revenue, not not budget and it's just like why even yeah. Mila Jovovich was like well good luck with that like yeah. go ahead it's <laughs> like anything that's an intellectual property that has some some margin of success seems like fair game for a remake or a reboot or uh something along those lines so but the, the the fact that it's announced this soon that they're willing to throw money at it this soon after the final film quote unquote supposedly uh it's just it's just mind-boggling, you know. It's like we used to joke about the Spider-Man reboot, right? How quickly we got, went from Tobey Maguire to Andrew Garfield, and it was too soon, and all that. And now it's like, whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> you know? It's like we're in this compressed time-space loop now, where the you know, it's like the day after a film comes out, oh, reboot, okay, we're we're we're, we're moving on. So uh, there is that. Um, So that's it for our, I guess, our reboot and Netflix news for this week. But we do have some news about Hong Kong films. So, Kevin? Yes, back to Hong Kong now. Um, We're getting a new uh, theater chain. Uh, Korea's uh, CGV Cinema is going to expand the brand into Hong Kong with the first um, cinema um, in uh, Lychee Kok, of all places. Lychee Kok is in West Kowloon. 
Uh, it's not really in the main center of town, but it is uh, a pretty crowded area these days. A lot of um, offices have moved into the industrial buildings that are there. And it is going to be in this new-ish mall called D2 Place. It's a mall that's been around for, I think, at least two, three years now. Um, uh, but they're going to get you know the hong kong's first cgv cinema cgv is korea's um biggest cinema operator they're known for their um lots of complicated screen technologies like the 4dx system which is the motion movie whatever spraying water in your face system (laughs) (laughs) is that what you call it motion cinema i guess that's what it is a patented technology um in korea they also have um lots of different amenities in their cinemas like they were the first one to create the temper cinema which means uh the seats are made of temper beds um the 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 vip you know premium cinemas they also have screen x which turns the the two walls on the side of the screen wait wait can you you just the the temper cinema yeah temper is in the the mattress maker okay so i mean that's obviously a place you need to avoid seriously because (laughs) i mean (laughs) You'll never see any film <laughs> before the film even starts. You're going to be out, right? Ah, I, I am interested in trying it. I have to say, it is, I have a temper pillow and it's extremely comfortable. So, but I don't, I don't sleep any better on a on a, on a, on a temper pillow than my usual pillow. So I can't say if it's going to really work hmm. that well. Um, I, I, I am dying to try. It, by the way, um, it also has Screen X, which turns the walls on the side of the screen it as an expansion of the screen which is really cool i've seen it once i haven't seen an entire movie in it but i've seen ads uh done in that format and it's extremely cool um they also have the which i'm gonna call it um what it calls uh a starium which uh is apparently the world's um biggest non-imax screen they have it in two of their screens in korea um hong kong is not getting the starium system unfortunately but but they are the new cinema in uh, light Chicago will get the the 4dx uh, technology which is already exists actually in the uh cinema in Mongkok, uh run by cinema city um they have the 4dx technology and and, and cgv will have it in this light Chicago cinema as well it's five houses or uh, four houses with a total of 500 seats so it's not going to be huge auditoriums um but my experience at cgv cinemas in korea has been very good I like them, I think. Um, they have a dedicated so-called art house program. So they d- dedicate a few screens of some of the theaters to art house or, or smaller films, um, which I don't think they're going to do in the Hong Kong cinema either. Anyway, CGV has been making a very aggressive expansion the last few years into Southeast Asia. They have um, 19 cinemas in uh, Vietnam. They have uh, a number of cinemas in Indonesia. They have 60 cinemas in China. They have two cinemas in the LA area in the US. Um, They actually also own the Lux Theater here in Hong Kong, the old school single screen theater in Hong Kong. But they didn't incorporate into their brand and um, it's still the old local Lux where they hand draw the take they hand draw the seating chart, um, but they essentially what they did was that they bought this theater essentially to so they could as a as a stepping stone because uh, Hong Kong cinema operators can hold a majority stake in cinemas in mainland China, which is why they bought up the Lux. But this is the first actual CGV cinema that's going to open in Hong Kong, and um, if not for the location, I'd be pretty excited. Because I like, like I said, I like CGV cinema, and but um, I hope that this will be the first of a very successful expansion. I hope that um, CGV will bring some of their great technology or some of their programming um, style over to Hong Kong, as in they would do that dedicated art house style 
um, uh, programming, or they would bring the Storium technology or ScreenX technology to Hong Kong. Um, but that's only if people go to the cinema. So I hope uh, the best for them. And it's expected to open um, the first quarter of uh, 2018. So um, if I do get to go next year and this podcast to exist, uh, I'll report back. All right. Is is this in conjunction with the West Kowloon Cultural District at all as, as part of the redevelopment? Or is this is this in a place where it's supposed to cater to that kind of crowd or the kind of traffic they're going to get? Oh, no, 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 no. The West Kowloon Art District is in um, in the Kowloon Station, which is near Jordan. Mm. This this Light Sheikok is literally in, in the edge of Kowloon before you hit the Kwai Cheng area. So it's way, way up in the west. And it has nothing to do with the West or Kowloon Cultural District. It's miles away from it. Um, no, this is because this mall in Light Sheikok, I think they're trying to, you know, get some more foot foot traffic into the mall it's not a it's a it's a it's a crowded area but only on work days you know and because there's a lot of offices um it's um not a major residential area there are uh developments around there um closer a bit south not near the the main mtr line but towards the other line um i think they're within about 10 15 minute walk away um, but I think they're trying to retain some of that foot traffic at the end of the workday and also trying to get uh, people from around that area, including the Kwai Ching area um, and the uh, Sum Shui Po and, and, and also um, um, surrounding area. Chen Sha Wan, sorry, yeah. Chen Sha Wan also has some residential buildings. So they're trying to get, because um, that area from some above north of west of Prince Edward all the way up to Kwai Ching doesn't have a single theater. And that's about area covering about three MTR stops. And there isn't one single theater in that area. And I think that's to trying to attract some of that foot traffic that's in Shumshaipo up to like Chicago. Um And they're trying to go a bit conservative. Five screens is not a very big number, especially in Hong Kong these days. 500 seats, not a big number. So I think they're trying to go a bit conservative. But it's a good brand. And um, I hope that they do well. All right. We'll look forward to your future reporting on any experiences you have there. Our final bit of news, uh, some news about a couple Hong Kong films. Yes, um, the, well, two well, film festival news, really. Um, Anhui's new film, Our Time Will Come, um, has been announced as the opening film of the Shanghai Film Festival. This is um, a war drama set during the uh, Japanese occupation period in Hong Kong, and it follows, uh, it stars Zhou Xun as a primary school teacher who gets uh, caught up in the, the war effort, the anti-Japanese effort. Um, and she joins a guerrilla force um, that's run by uh, uh, Blackie Lau, who is played by Eddie Pang. Um, the film is, of, of course, completely in Mandarin. Um, and it's produced by uh, Bona Film Group, who also produced um, A Simple Life. Um, and uh, it's going to be not only... It will be the opening film of the Shanghai Film Festival, which is um, in mid-June. It will also be in the main competition for the Golden Goblet Award. Um, I don't remember if Anhui's last film, I think Golden Era did not play in Shanghai Film Festival, but uh, bonus films you know, have been playing at the festival. I think last year they opened with... Um, no, two years ago they opened with I Am Somebody, which is Derek Yee film, so that's another bonus film. Um, so... Uh, the film will open, I think, in Hong Kong, in China on July 1st, Hong Kong and Taiwan on July 6th, and not sure yet about the rest of the world. So um, I guess it, you know, that's something to look... I, I, I haven't seen the Enhui war drama, so I'm not sure how this is going to go. 
but an angry film is always worth looking forward to so so i look forward to that um another film festival news 29 plus one the film that we're about to talk about last week they announced that it won the best foreign film director uh award at a at a, at a film festival in nice uh, if you don't know the French geography, Nice is actually about forty minute train ride away from Cannes. Um, this festival is called, but it's, this is not part of the Cannes Film Festival. There's a um, so called film festival called the International Filmmaker Festival of World Cinema. It's almost like calling Pizza Hut the international chain of pizza restaurants. It's a very generic name, and when a film film festival has a very generic name like this, I mean, people starts raising their eyebrow um and it started it was revealed that this quote-unquote film film festival uh runs all the screenings of an airport hotel near nice um they essentially rented the ballrooms and run the films back to back there and apparently all the films all 40 something films that get that get um submitted to this festival picked up an award left with an award so 29 plus one happened to be allocated not earned allocated the best foreign film director award so this once again brought up the the conversation about how um uh hong kong films or certain films um they submit to all kinds of film festivals around the world and not checking whether it's valid not checking whether it is um um is is a proper film festival not checking whether you know these film festivals even have screenings they just want to pick up an award and show it to the Hong Kong press, or if they have Hong Kong film funding or Hong Kong uh, government film funding, show the government that they won an award. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that 29 plus one is a film that needed to do that. I mean, it won a proper audience award at the Osaka Asian Film Festival, a film festival with real venues, real audience, and real voting. And I was a bit sad that they had to turn to that sort of uh, uh, um resort to that kind of steps to get a so-called award recognition. Um, so this is um, it's sad. It's very sad. Um, of course, director Kieran Pang has not said anything about it. She's very proud of the award. And a lot of people, um, I don't think she's intentionally um, deceiving anyone. I think that some of these, a lot of these filmmakers just don't know any better. Um, and I think that it's time that, these producers and sales agents and film companies need to really look into what kind of film festivals um, these films are submitting themselves into. They can't just go and throw money at a film festival and then bring back an award and say, look, we've earned this international renowned, internationally recognized award from a film festival, which is not true. Um, the Ledger, a film from a few years ago, uh, claimed that it won 27 awards or, or it won awards from 27 film festivals and then it was revealed that a lot of these film festivals did not hold proper screenings. Um, a lot of these film festivals are just award for purchase, essentially. you Again, you pay a screening fee, you get into the so-called film festival, and you get an award um, in return. And it, it caused a lot of controversy then, and people are a lot more wiser to these things now because of the internet and because of what happened to Ledger. So you have to be better than that. You have to do your research. Um, and it's sad that 29 plus 1 had to, had to take that step. Yeah, but I mean, come on. When you see the credit using American English, it looks like the nice film festival. Can't be all bad, right? <laughs> Honestly, if you are, if you have a film festival that's happening concurrently with Cannes, and it's not in Cannes, it's in a town 40 minutes away from Cannes, happening at the same time as the world's biggest film festival, you're kind of wondering, 
huh, really? Like, is this for real? But apparently they didn't do that, so that's too bad. All right. Well, we'll take a short musical break, and Kevin will be back with his review of 29 Plus One. Feeling your emotions riding on a memory lane Cup of coffee in the morning rain Hope that you will stay Hey, 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 lock the room and let me hear your voice again I'm into a song I've never heard No need to understand Then you drew a line with your hands just And welcome back. Up first, our e-screen review of 29 plus one. So Kevin, what can you tell us about this uh, stage play come film? Yes, 29 plus one is the directorial debut of uh, Kieran Pang. She's uh, one of Hong Kong's top playwrights slash stage actresses. Um, she has adapted the play. It's a one woman play, actually. It ran and it ran eight times. It was so popular that they, she did eight runs and each run she went to a bigger theater and it kept selling out. So this is one of the most sort of successful plays in Hong Kong in recent history, at least, like in recent memory. Um, so she decided to make this film, the story, her directorial debut. Um, now, she does not act in the film. She's only uh, in the director's chair. Um, it said the film stars Chrissy Chow, Joyce Chang, and maybe John Choi. Now, the story, Lam Chi Kwan, played by Chrissy Chow, is a regional marketing director for a cosmetics firm. However, Kwan finds her life falling apart when she runs into trouble with her love life and her relationship with her senile father. Meanwhile, Wong Tin Lok, played by Joyce Chang, is a girl who is also turning 30. She's a bright, optimistic girl working in a small record shop and has a great friendship with her best friend, played by baby John Choi. When Kwan ha- is forced to move into Locke's flat, things slowly begin to change. Now, um, I've seen the play. I've actually seen the play once. I don't remember what year. I think 2013. I don't remember much of the play. Um, I remember that Kieran Plank Pang played both roles in the film. It's pretty much a one-woman play, aside from the uh, the boyfriend character and the best friend character. I don't remember if they also played by the same person, but um, Pang, Pang played both roles. Uh, but she has worked pretty hard to make the story work as a film. Um, she added the um, <clears throat> a lot of characters. Uh, she added multiple scenes where you know it sort of fleshes out these characters, especially um, the Chrissy Chow character. Um, and and I think she's worked hard to make it work as a film story. In fact, I don't I didn't remember much of the play until I saw some of the scenes from the play actually carried over to the film. But otherwise, I think it holds up sort of as its own story. Um, for the most part, um, it really does work. Except when you see these longer scenes from the play transported into film, because the the the, the pacing of the film sort of stops because it, it moves at quite a quite a good pace throughout um but um those longer scenes really drag things out and some of these sort of fantastical more fantastical scenes um in the film really works much better on stage um for example there's a scene towards the end where one of the characters um uh pushed back a wall and it reveals itself and then you know then you see paris um but you know that works good on stage because you know it's like it's a very literal thing, and you see that on stage you have that that effect seeing it live. But in the film, I don't think it works so well because uh, because the first half of the film 
you have a real very down-to-earth story and you start getting to these sort of fantastical elements that don't that felt a bit not not really quite fitting with with what you see on the, for the rest of the film um pang like i said earlier pang splits the roles you played uh to two actresses uh chrissy chow and joyce chang and i think that that's a very very wise decision um, because it really allows the the two characters to to become more fully fleshed character fleshed out characters. Um, you see two very distinct personalities um, with two different faces, and and it's really much better at creating these two different characters. Um, I think Chrissy Chow's character is more convincing. Like I said, she's a more down to earth character. She's a complex character, real flaws and real troubles. And I think Chrissy Chow really did a very good job here. She's a She's actually a serious actress. I know despite her modeling roots, she has proven herself to be a very solid actress. Um, I think this is a very interesting year for her. Earlier we had Yuppie Fantasia, and then we saw we see her here in 29 plus 1, and later in the year she has Husband Killers, which is a bit more exploitation stuff. So it's a very interesting for her acting career, I think. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if she finally gets her first acting nomination here with 29 plus 1. I hope she does. Um, it might happen. Who knows? Um, excuse me. Um, a lot of reviewers seem to like Joyce Chang better, but I think that's more because of the character more than the actual performance. Uh, Wanting Lock, it's a very um, optimistic, like I said, very optimistic. Very has a very um, sunny outlook, and she's a very pleasant character to watch, and she's always happy. And, and I'm not sure if that's more challenging to play, but I think that character is a lot more likable. Than Chrissy char- Chrissy's character, and I think that's why people gravitating towards get that character. Um, it's not a bad performance, but I think it's a bit more one note compared to Chrissy. Um, Pang is 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 definitely not a bad director, um, even though she was given extra time to complete the film because the first cut actually premiered last November at the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival, and it was supposedly a uh, still a sort of a rough-ish cut. It wasn't a final cut yet, so um, in the past. Uh, couple months i think she took another two months to re-edit the film a little bit um so i'm a bit curious to see how how that first cut compares to the new cut but anyway i mean she's been she's been, she's been doing this play for 10 years so she has such a fam- familiar familiarity with the play and the characters that i think she got a bit of a head start so it's a bit unfair to say this is a really first directorial debut because she also directed the play Wait, I'm sure she directed the play. I don't want to make a mistake. So I think she at least wrote the play for sure. Um, I'm not sure if she directed it, but she definitely wrote it. Um, and she definitely started it. So I know that she, so she's been living with this story for 10 years. So so it's a pretty good head start already. So the real test of her skills as a director really comes, I think, when she does an original script. Um, it is a chick flick. You have two male char- female characters, and it's all about... The women's about their friendships and it's about their lives. Um, so for men who who aren't ready to take that, take that in, who just want to see Chrissy, be prepared for that. They they might not like it. I personally had no trouble with it. You know, I think I think Hong Kong needs more female directorial voices, uh, and and it's a very strong voice, um, and it's an interesting voice. And I like to see, uh, like I said, I I think. I like to see more of these sort of female-centric films in Hong Kong that is not Patrick Kong films or they're not uh, uh, just about dating. They're truly about the inner lives of women. Um, 
I think uh, contemporary Hong Kong needs that feminist voice because I think Hong Kong pop culture is lacking that feminist voice. You know, there's that uh, something called the Basho test. Um, is to test whether two women can have a conversation in a film about talking about uh, a man um, or their relationship. And I think that this film doesn't quite pass it, but um, it's still, I think we need sort of a film that takes a direction where you can finally have a female-centric film that does not have a, that can actually pass the Bachelor test. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Pang comes up with if she ever does an original script. Um, I hope she does. Um and uh, until then, this is a very solid directorial debut, and uh, I recommend it highly. All right. So, you know, I guess this is a film that points out the difference in uh, having a director that's uh, interested in the material, right? Because the, I think the last time we saw Chrissy Chow and Joyce Cheng together in a film was I Girl, right? My God. <laughs> <laughs> My God, no! I think I think you know I think they are interested in the material. To, I mean, no, I think it's more interested. I think it's more it's better to have two actresses who are fully committed to the material. I mean, how how can Christy Chow be be committed to a film where she literally plays a sex object? Right, like I girl, she is literally a sex object. Um, I think Christy certainly um, uh, appreciates materials like that. Um, in Yuppie Fantasia, she plays a middle-aged man's fantasy, but at least she has uh, a character to play. I think Husband Killers is also interesting because, um, again, it's a female-centric exploitation film. So I think you know that could be up her boat, you know, right up her alley. And I think this one, again, it's about it's truly a film about the inner lives of women, and I think she could fully commit herself to that that material. Um, so I think it's more about the importance of finding of an actor is finding uh, material they can truly commit and relate to. Um, and this is a proof of that. I think both actresses are, did, did, a, did a very good job um, and has certainly helped um, helped the film. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. She really has kind of had a pretty strong turn going back, in my memory, to films like uh, Breakup 100 uh, the, with where she co-starred up opposite Ikin Chang and kind of stole the rug out from under him in quite a few scenes, right, um, back in 2014. Um, so it's great that she is able to sort of cast off the the old pseudo-model mold and, and get out of simply being the sort of Wong Jing-ish style, you know, sex object, which, unfortunately, if you look at her filmography, that's a majority of her roles. Hopefully this will get her able to kind of push beyond that, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, there is no such thing as feminist discussion happening in Hong Kong. There's no um, um, discussion about the need for more female cinema in Hong Kong, female voice, because the Hong Kong industry is so dominated by men that even attempt at female cinema might get dismissed. Mm. You know, because there is such a bad negative labeling of Hong Kong female at the moment in, in the last couple of years, you know, the whole Hong Kong girl, you know, idea. So, um, uh, it's a bit sad that that's happened, but um, I think that 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 woman should push through and try to get more of their voices in into mainstream cinema. Said he wandered very 
And welcome back. For our West Green Review this week, we are looking at the latest entry into the Alien Intellectual Property franchise, that of Alien Covenant. This is a sequel of sorts and a prequel of sorts um, from director Ridley Scott. The cast includes, among others, Catherine Watterson, Danny McBride, Michael Fassbender, and Billy Crudup. The story, Colony Ship The Covenant, receives a mysterious signal that diverts them to a nearby planet. While there, they discover an alien ship and a deadly alien pathogen, which begins to wreak havoc among the crew. When they are saved by a mysterious cloaked figure, um, who seems to have a deeper understanding of the events that have begun to plague the crew, questions begin to arise as to who this person is and how they got there. So, uh, if that sounds kind of like a generic... Alien movie? Uh, it kind of is. I mean, as I said, this is trying to set up the Prometheus movie, which not many people really liked. I mean, I think in discussions I've had, uh, the minority tended to like the film, whereas the majority tended not to like the film so much. Um, it has merits of its own. We don't want to get into that too much. But this movie is serving as a bridge between what's established in Prometheus and Ridley Scott's original directorial work of Alien. Um, but as such, this kind of isn't a finished Alien prequel. I mean, it doesn't lead directly to, you know, the next logical step, which would be, you know, just spilling right over into the events that happen in, in that movie. And I've read that there are rumors of uh, more films in this sort of prequel run. Um, two or three or one, I'm not sure, but we'll have to wait and see how well this does. Discussions I've had thus far, because this film got a earlier release over in Asia than it did here, um, initially kind of put me off wanting to see it, uh, because people that I listen to that I respect when it comes to science fiction films and, and properties that have been given, you know, the reboot or the, the sort of rewritten extensions like this one, um, tended to be mixed on it. Uh, as a fan of the original Alien and even more so uh, Aliens, I was kind of interested to see where this was going to go and how it made that sort of bridge with the Prometheus film. Um, but they kind of fall into a lot of pitfalls that other films in this property have um, fallen into. And the main one that I do kind of want to point out right off the bat is Alien Gestation. Um, if you've seen the trailer, you know that you're going to get an alien at some point. Um, and the gestation period here happens faster than ever, um, or is at least on par with the fastest I've seen it happen, which goes back to the Alien versus Predator franchise. And I do apologize for bringing that up because I know that's heresy for many, many people out there. But those films do exist. Uh, you know, the one thing that Alien knew and director Ridley Scott knew back in when, when they made that film was the Jaws rule, right? And the, that rule is you don't show the shark. And they applied that rule and they drew out the tension and it worked very well in that film. By the second film, by James Cameron's film, Aliens, you know, you couldn't really apply that rule too much anymore because you kind of knew what the shark looked like, you know, the, so... You get Jaws 2 in, in this extent. So what do you do? You, you have to take it further, right? Um, but even in that one, they didn't push the envelope too much. It's still quite a while before you actually encounter any aliens um, in that film. And while well, they start off taking that approach here, um, 
what they do with gestation really just kind of throws everything out the window because the John Hurt character in the original Alien, he gets face hugged, he goes back to the ship. <coughs> Excuse me. He's in the sick bay for a considerable amount of time with the face hugger on, then it falls off, then everything. It's like 24, you know, 36 hours later before anything significant starts to happen to him, right? So it takes time. And then it's like, now, well, we, we know what's going to happen. we got to push it forward, push it forward, push it forward. And so now stuff seems to happen, like, within the span of an hour. Not of the hour you're watching the film, but within the span of, you know, an hour of time as it passes um, for these characters. And it just seems way too rushed and, and, and way too fast for all of it to, to escalate. And it's, you know, it's a narrative trap because you want things to happen. You've got to get to that next jump scare. You've got to get to that next, you know action sequence and so how do you do that with something that you've got characters sitting around for 36 hours they knew how to do it in those films apparently they don't know how to do it too well in these films so it becomes um, a combination of the wrong things happening at the wrong time you know these coincidental events and then supposedly smart people making very dumb decisions and this was part of the problem with i had with prometheus you know you're sending supposedly the best of the best into these space missions, super bright scientists, you know, this is a this is a crew of people who are in charge of the lives of two thousand colonists who are all in hypersleep on this this ship, the Covenant. You know, they so you know they're responsible for the lives of all these people. They should be super smart. They should not be dumb, but they're dumb. If they ever send people this dumb into space for real, we are so boned as a species. I, I said this in a conversation on Facebook. It's like, you know, no, you can't. You can't be this dumb and go into space. I'm sorry. Um, so you get this perfect storm of events that lead to bad things happening. Um, and, you know, it, you, it just becomes a sort of series of expectations or a series of unfortunate events, you know, to not to, to directly rip off the title from the from uh, Lemony Snicket books and the, the Netflix series. But that's exactly what it is. It's a series of un coincidental, unfortunate events, you might say. Um, and there's some, you know, because of the way the plot's constructed, there's some potential for it not to be as coincidental as we might be led to believe, but I won't get into too much of that because for fear of revealing spoilers. But there are two web shorts that go along with this that people should watch. The first is called, called Last Supper, which is um, this sort of meeting of the crew before they go into hypersleep, which I assumed watching it, I thought this was just like an extended trailer. I thought it was part of the film, and it's not in the film. And there's a significant character there I'm not going to mention who really gets no other screen time. I mean, he's there in, in that, the, that sort of web clip, and you see him briefly in the movie, and that's it. It's like, well, okay, and, you know, he's a pretty fairly recognizable name and I'll, I won't say more than that um, so be sure to watch that if you haven't if you've seen the movie you haven't watched it go watch it um, it does help sort of establish the crew relations a little bit more um, than the film does by itself there's also another called the crossing which is a narrative piece which builds out of the end of Prometheus and into this film they cover some of that material although I think they they narratively are a bit more explicit with it uh, in this crossing. Both are, both are short. They're about, you know, four or five minutes each. Um, so, you know, if you're planning to watch the film or you've seen the film, do go online on YouTube and watch them. Um, 
So yeah, uh, in terms of the performances, it's pretty standard fare, I would say, overall, with the exception of um, Danny McBride, who normally I don't like because he's kind of, you know, put in these situation comedy movies where he's being super goofy. And here he's just a normal guy, you know, he's one of the crew, and he's kind of reacting to situations, and he's allowed to be dramatic, and he's awesome. He's probably my favorite character uh, of the crew. And, you know, his name, he goes by the name Tennessee. That's kind of a callback to the original, um, where Tom Skerritt, you know, he had the name Dallas. So, you know, naming people after, state, after states and cities uh, among the crew, I guess, is a thing in this universe, so that's fine. Um, but really, this is Fassbender's movie, um, With if all is said and done. He plays a synthetic named Walter, who looks exactly exactly like the David synthetic of Prometheus, and that serves as sort of a carryover uh, narrative back to that film as well. And um, he carries many of the scenes of the movie. And so as that sort of carryover from Prometheus, when the film works best for me is when it's dealing with the issues that were being dealt with in Prometheus about the engineers, but also about um, ideas about creation, gods and monsters, you know, searching for meaning, you know, where do we come from? All of that kind of stuff is put on his shoulders. Everybody else is, I mean, they do kind of throw throw in this faith aspect with the character played by Billy Crudup, but it's kind of only kind of thrown out there in the beginning. Um, and it's very much in your face. I think it could have been much more subtle. Um, but the sort of the central idea about creation and and parentage and all of that is is very interesting in the way that sort of Fastbender has had has to carry that through the movie. And I don't want to say more than that because that would get into spoilers. Which I think if you go in not knowing what's going to happen, it would it, you know it's a much more entertaining experience um so as a carryover from prometheus i think the film works well and that's takes us up to about the midway point of the film as a prequel to alien less so um again because it just becomes another alien movie and it tries to do a few things in terms of original things but they're not that original you see some of this in the trailer and it's like okay yeah we've got a slightly new alien design before we get to the more classic traditional alien design um but it's just an alien you know how many movies do we need to see chest bursts or that kind of you know body mutilation thing happen um with these you know xenomorphs it's just not that original anymore so um they they have they have basically two designs that one is a bit more reflective of what we saw at the end of prometheus and one is a bit more reflective of what you end up seeing um, in the later Alien film. And, again, it's all in the trailer, so you can kind of see what's coming there. Um, So it feels very been there, done that. We've seen this before. We've seen it done better in other films. Um, You know, chest burst, shower scenes, all this kind of stuff. Beyond that, though, I think the visual design here is very, very good. Um, They do really have a good sense of trying to get this film to be more in line with things to come. So the Prometheus thing happens like a decade earlier, and because it was the Wayland Corp, it was like super glossy and super high-tech and really good 
special effects for, you know, where we are now compared to where the films were when they were done, you know, decades ago. But even so, it didn't really feel like it felt part of the same universe. And now they're trying to establish that link. And so the, sh the way the ship looks, um, that of the Covenant, it feels more like the Nostromo and some of the design aspects. Um, there are, you know, things, just the clothing they wear, the things they carry, the weaponry, that kind of stuff feels like it fits within the same kind of universe that we know from Aliens as well. So that kind of stuff I really appreciated and I liked very much. Um, they do throw in a twist for this film that I think most people should see coming a mile away. And again, it just, for me, it kind of brings the film down a couple notches because, I mean, again, how dumb do you have to be? <laughs> I mean, when you're facing certain situations, you just don't suddenly think in the back of your mind, hmm, you know, uh, there's something there's something a bit off here. And because of that, I just don't, I didn't feel anything for really any of the crew by this point, except for the Danny McBride character. Um, so if you, you know, if you're thinking in the back of your mind, hey, you know, I think I see a twist coming, you're probably absolutely right. You know, it's just that obvious. Um, and it's surprising that, you know, in the hands of a director like Ridley Scott, he would, he wouldn't have made that, he wouldn't have done that somehow more subtly. I don't know how you could do it more subtly, because again, it seems like somebody would be asking a question about something, but that's just me. Um, but yes, in some ways, this kind of makes the story into a almost Frankenstein kind of story. And I again, I, I can't say more than that without getting into too deep spoilers, which... Yeah, I guess it's that's an interesting angle, and it'll be interesting to see what happens next if they do just leave it here, and that's it, or they do go with another film or two to carry this linkage forward. But for myself, I'm kind of I just I'm kind of done with the whole thing. I mean, it's how many chest bursts do we need? <laughs> how many people getting, you know, the 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 mouth within the mouth, you know, the Geiger alien double mouth coming out and, and popping you in the head. How much of that do we need? Um, I, th I think they've kind of pushed the envelope to its limits here because it seems very repetitive uh, by this point. So it's a visually fine film to look at. It's Ridley Scott, so there's it, it has that going for it, but a lot of it just seems overly been there, done that. If you are a fan of the franchise, I'd say, you know, you can get out and see this as a at a matinee or, or wait for video. Um, but I don't think it's worthy of anything beyond that. Certainly not paying out the big bucks for an IMAX screening or anything like that, 3D or none of that, I'd say. Um, you know, because again, it's, you're going to see a lot of the stuff that you've kind of seen before. Um, but see it for Fastbender, see it for Danny McBride, and see it for the visual design if you're a fan of the series. Kevin, any plans to follow through with uh, this? I've watched the other Alien films, so I'll, I'll see it eventually, just not immediately. I'm not a huge fan of the franchise, and like you said, there's a huge problem with the whole um, idea that these people always act. Like you say, you always got the smartest people acting the most, the most dumb in space, you know. Um, so a bit always have a problem with that, especially in Prometheus. If you see an artist trailer, I watched the artist trailer of Prometheus before I watched the film, and that ruined the film for me. 
Yeah, because they I bring up you know these great, great things about you know why Charlize Theron can't have to run in a straight line. Yeah, I, they're gonna they're <laughs> oh, gonna have yeah. a field day with this one too. I think. Um, oh, so, I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Uh, you can follow my uh, website. Um, I'm at www.asiainscinema.com. That's Asia in cinema.com. Um, follow his Facebook page and also Twitter because I do put some smaller news posts in um, the Facebook and Twitter pages and, and not on the website. So follow, look up, look up Asia and Cinema on Facebook and Twitter. You can also read my work on Discovery Magazine. Um, that's Cathay Pacific's uh, in-flight magazine. Uh, also on Cathay Dragons Magazine, Silk Road. And you can read the, the, the content digitally uh, on CathayPacific.com slash discovery. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. And you can contact me. I'm Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. All right, excellent. And please do be sure to check out his essay on the whole Netflix thing if you have if you're interested in that as well. Um, all right, our next show, episode two two eight. What do you think we'll be talking about for eScreen, sir? I will be talking about Dealer Slash Healer or Dealer Healer. The new film starring uh, Lao Ching Wan and Louis Ku, which is like their 20th film together. But it's the new film by Lawrence Lau, who directed Besieged City and uh, also um, My Name is Fame. So that should be exciting. All right. We'll look forward to that. Um, don't know if I'm going to get to a West screen film this week because uh, my schedule is quite busy. Not sure if I'm going to make it out to the cinema. But I have in the back of my mind, Kevin mentioned it earlier um, Blame, which has recently been released on Netflix, is a sort of anime movie. I'm looking forward to watching that. So I may talk about that uh, as an East Screen addendum next week. So uh, if uh, that changes, I will hopefully update the schedule over on Facebook. But well, we some... could be ta- we could we could talk about the new Netflix original film War Machine uh, just to just continue our Netflix discussion. Mm, yeah, there there is that too. But we'll be talking about something to be sure. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, never follow a signal to an alien planet. Just don't do it. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Go Warriors! We'll